You are listening to the I Am God's Beloved podcast, hosted by Susan Quinnell and Kim Decker. Scripture tells us that we are God's beloved children, that God sees us, that God delights in us. We long to know those who we worship alongside deeper so that we might better understand the breadth of God's love and the expansiveness of God's kingdom. Please join us as we hear the diverse and powerful personal stories of some of God's beloved children. Before we get into the interviews, Susan and I want to share a little about why we wanted to have these conversations in podcast form. For starters, I love the podcast format, and given that we aren't able to connect in person as easily these days, I saw this format as a way to connect with members of our church in a deeper way. I've always loved hearing from women at Women in Touch and at various retreats, and this seemed like another way to dig deeper and learn more from different people. While God was stirring that desire in Kim, I was looking for a way in which the BIPOC voices in our body could be heard. I hoped to relay God's good news of love for each and every one of us as beloved children of God. Scripture communicates God's magnificent creation in each of us. God sees us. God hears us. As we know ourselves and one another more fully as children of God, and we become acquainted, develop, and share relationships with our brothers and sisters, in Christ, within Jesus' love, we have the potential to move towards unity in God's kingdom. So we reached out to folks with our vision. We asked people to pray and consider whether involvement with this project would be life-giving or would be life-draining. We want to honor people with this space, not harm them. Listeners may recall that we had the pleasure of hearing a sermon from Oshetta Moore this summer. Recently on her Instagram, she posted the following. Dear white peacemakers, this is our work together, white peacemaker, to reclaim humanity for both of us and create a counterculture that actively exposes and resists the violence of white supremacy culture. Asking us to share our traumatic race stories on panels and podcasts for articles and commentary in small groups or in coffee dates sometimes feels like you're robbing us of our liberation. Pastor Moore then offered some suggestions about how to best help our BIPOC brothers and sisters. In this instance, it was during the verdict of the trial of Derek Chauvin. And she added, please, please, please practice Christ-like love and do everything you can to protect and preserve the belovedness of your black and brown leaders. This could be one of the most profound witnesses you offer in this moment. Our intention with this podcast is indeed to protect and preserve the belovedness of our brothers and sisters. We respect and dearly love those who have declined to share and those who are not ready to do so. For those who want their voices heard, we pray that this will be a space that God can use for our collective growth and unity. And one final note, (laughs) we ask that you use discretion with younger listeners as some of the stories may be better suited for mature audiences. Without further ado. I want to introduce our listeners today to Marty Reed. She's a woman that I have gotten to know over the 
past couple of years um, through conversation. And I find her a woman of adventure and a woman who is a marker maker. Um, And when I say that, I mean making a difference in this country and in this world. So welcome, Marty. I'm glad to be here and chatting with you. Tell me a little bit about you and your story. How did you get to be Marty Reed? I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, and my my parents believe that names are really important. And so growing up, I knew that I was named after both of my grandmothers. I have a grandmother, Martha, a grandmother, Elizabeth. So my name is actually Martha Elizabeth hyphenated. And, um, and so on the family wall with our, our pictures, um, one of them uh, below one, one picture, um, it has my two names. With a, It's a plaque that has the name, the meaning of the name, and an associated Bible verse. And my, my mom would frequently tell my brothers and I that, um, that we were going to grow into our names. And so that marker was an important reminder every day of who we were becoming. So Martha is a great woman, um, and Elizabeth is a woman who is consecrated, who's set apart for a special purpose. And so um, I didn't know as a kid that I would end up um, where I would end up, Um, but I do feel like um, that heritage I'm grounded in my grandmothers, who were both very strong women of faith, has guided my path and brought me to where I am. I should uh, tell a little bit more than just my name, but um, I did my undergrad in Ohio, and I vowed that I would never go back to Maryland if I had my choice, because I just... I I wanted to be out in the world. I wanted to be exploring. And I grew up with a mom who was always home. She was a family daycare provider. And I just, I wanted to escape. Um, But after I finished undergrad, I actually went back to Maryland um, and taught middle and high school for a couple of years. I worked at NASA for a couple of years once I graduated from undergrad. And the reason is, is I had some personal struggles in undergrad um, that uh, actually pushed me to the brink of suicide, and I needed to rebuild my life, and I wasn't sure about graduate school, and so I took the teaching job to sort of put my life back together, and that's where I would say I really came into my own as a person of faith. Um, My parents are both very strong Christians. I mentioned that my grandmothers were very strong Christians, and I had sort of built my life around the idea that I didn't want to disappoint my family and I wanted to do the right things. And so I focused on trying to please everyone all the time. Um, And in college, that didn't work. And so that sort of pushed me to um, places I'd never been. I didn't know how to think about um, what I was learning in school versus what I believed. And I didn't want to deal with that discomfort comfort um, or try to reconcile those together. And so when I graduated, I got to a point when like I had to integrate that. I had to put it together. I had to deeply research my faith and believe what I believed 
because I believed it, not because I didn't want to make somebody else upset that I didn't believe what they thought that I believed. And so that time that I was teaching middle and high school was a time that I was deeply interrogating my faith and putting my life back together, figuring out who I was and what direction that God wanted me to go. And so then once I figured that out, I took the job at NASA and was doing cool work, designing telescopes and optical test beds and spending my evenings and weekends preparing to go to physics graduate school. Um, and so I had to teach myself some physics, pass the physics GRE, and get to graduate school, um, which I did at the University of Colorado in Boulder. So my PhD is in physics. I'm the first black woman to get a PhD in physics in the state of Colorado. And that's sort of a, an interesting experience. Um, I never sought to be a pioneer, but I was. Um, and... I didn't sort of think about that at the time that I was going through. I just sort of did my own thing. It was during that time that I sort of realized the importance of my position in the world and the power of my position in the world. Um, and that has definitely informed my thoughts about my career moving forward. But I graduated, um, got my PhD. I did a visiting position at Carleton. I came uh, back to Colorado and did a postdoc. And then I returned back to Carleton for a tenure track position. And in the meantime, I got married to Brian Reed, whom you may uh, know who plays music uh, every once in a while on Sundays. He tends to play the bass or sing. Um, and so we picked up, moved here, and have been in Northfield for... Uh, 11 going on 12 years now. Can you tell us about a particular experience, event, or a place that made you aware of the impact of race, race in our world and in your life? I remember the first time that I actually, I don't want to say thought about race, but that it wasn't impactful to me. So my older brother and I were having an argument and he said, you're black. And I said, I'm not. And he said, you are. And we argued and I started crying and apparently I cried for a week. So I don't know exactly what it meant to me back then. I, I was under 10 years old, maybe five, six, seven, something like that. I, I don't remember what I thought being black meant, but it was clearly not something that I ever wanted to be associated with. And that's a very clear memory to me. Um, and so now there's a running joke with my older brother. He says, what color are you now? And I said, oh, I'm a burnt umber today. And that was one very early memory. I don't remember my parents talking about race specifically, but I do remember that the kids at school would call me an Oreo. I guess it didn't really bother me. I didn't have friends. I was, um, in order to address the issue that I couldn't please everyone all the time, I tended to be antisocial. I kept to myself a lot. Um, I never had lots of friends. And so I guess it didn't really bother me. But eventually I figured out that that meant I was black on the outside and white on the inside. I was teased for 
um, getting good grades. I was teased for not acting the way that the other black kids acted. Um, and from, from both sides. So it was more likely that a, a black kid would call me an Oreo than a white kid would call me an Oreo. Um, cause I didn't act black. Um, I can't dance. Not really. I'll sort of scoot around and, and move my hands or something. I don't play sports. I'm just me. And I don't think that there's any problem with that being black, but, um, Definitely, that's even in my adulthood, I've heard that comment either made about me or somebody else. And I think that when I, when I look around um, and sort of see sort of where, where black people have achieved success, one of the things that isn't lost on me is how color complexion plays into it. So with, even within the black community, um, whether you're lighter skinned or darker skinned, I can, I can see places where people, black people have been treated differently within the community and outside of the black community because of just our particular skin tone and how light or dark we are. You really bring up a positive example of the importance of not putting people in a box, um, no matter who we are, um, color or ethnicity, um, that we are who, who we are from the inside. I think that's one of the things that I've sort of, you know, people have asked me um, what it has been like to be in different spaces. And I think I, there's so many ways in which I'm atypical that it's, it's just always been very challenging for me um, to be in most spaces that I exist in. And being a deep introvert, it's probably one of the reasons why I'm not a very social creature, because I'm constantly bucking people's expectations of what I should be. Right, I'm a I'm a black woman in physics. Um, I'm a Christian and a scientist. Um, there's just so many places. Right, I'm in I'm in rural Minnesota. There's just so many places where I'm not supposed to be that I've kind of gotten used to that. And um, and it's not to say that I'm not happy in these places or these spaces. I've figured out how to navigate those places. Um, but it's not lost on me that I, I really don't feel like I fit in in any place that I've ever been. What, what other story might you have um, where you felt your voice as a person of color was not heard, or you specifically experienced racism? I think that's a challenging question for me, because I don't think that I can say that I have overtly faced racism. And that doesn't mean that it's, it doesn't happen, but I think it happens in subtle ways. Um, you may have heard of a term called gaslighting that is 
more common now to sort of exp- to sort of describe how somebody expresses something that's happened to them and it's dismissed by somebody else that that possibly couldn't be true and i'm pretty sure that a lot of the experiences growing up that maybe if i was a little bit more um self-aware if i wasn't quite as aloof as a kid that i would have said oh that was that was racist and somebody would have made that comment to me that it wasn't that what i saw wasn't really happening but as i look back at those circumstances and i look at who these events were happening to and how was i different from the way that those events happened to everyone else that difference was because i was a woman in a group of men or i was black in a group of people who were not black um or people of color and so i think a lot of it is in hindsight that i can see oh maybe there was something up there but i didn't have i didn't have the capacity at that point in my life to see it um and i think on some ways that actually led to my success i think that if i had been more aware of the things that were happening to me i would have been discouraged and because i was oblivious i just kept moving forward i kept trusting on the the strength of my family roots my grandpa's my grandma's names um my my family upbringing that um my mom said i should never not do something because i was afraid if i'm not going to do something it's because i made a conscious choice not to do it for some for some reason and so those values kept propelling me forward um that family is deeply important and you make sacrifices for your family that your education is extremely important and it's your responsibility to own your own knowledge those things kept propelling me forward and i think that if i had been more aware of the comments that people were making the things that people did that actually held me back then i would have been more discouraged and maybe would not have gotten here in middle school 7th grade math um I had the highest grade in the math class. But my parents, seeing no reason why in 7th grade math I needed to use a calculator, didn't allow me to use a calculator. And so that means that I got the highest grade in the class without using a calculator. When it came time to make recommendations for um for what what the who who's going to which math class the advanced track or the regular track i was the only student in that class that was put in the regular track and not in the gifted and talented track and the reason given was because i didn't have all the essential skills that i needed and the only thing that i can think of was that i couldn't use a calculator which to me didn't make any any sense the only difference between me and the other kids besides our grade was that i was black I 
I, there were other there were other women in the class. I don't know how else to explain that. Um, if my mom knew that that happened, she would have fought tooth and nail to get me in the gifted and talented class. But as a kid, I just took what the teacher said. I didn't think anything about it and said, oh, well, if you think that's where I should go, well, then that's where I'll go. And so as a result, I was probably much slower in my math progression than I should have been. And so ultimately it ended up okay, right? Um, I'm in a very math-dominated field and I, you know, I have a PhD in physics. But think of where I could have been. Think of the challenges that I could have experienced in that gifted and talented class that I didn't get exposed to in the regular class. And so what happens if that happens systematically to the black kids who are going through that school? What happened to them? Your story is really sobering. On one hand, I hear you saying, I, I use this term sometimes, um, don't listen to all the, the noise. And you were very cognizant of not listening to the noise and listened to your values and um, followed what value had been placed within you, both by um, your faith and by your parents. And yet, because of systems, um, there were places where there was a turn of events or um, consequences um, for what uh, the system thought um, was best. I look at the circumstances where black individuals have been, have been killed for various reasons, whether it's within their own community or by law enforcement or whatever. And I can, you know, thinking to the messages that that I hear from society and within the black community. And I can hear in my head the conversations playing out just based on the assumptions that we make about each other and seeing them coming to a logical conclusion, knowing that it didn't have to be that way. That I understand how things escalated to get to the point where some person ended up losing their life. And all the steps are completely logical within the assumptions that were made. And yet, those assumptions didn't have to be true. They didn't, that progression didn't have to lead to that outcome. But it has to do with assumptions. And those assumptions lead to systematic um, results consequential in life and and sometimes death how are you doing this with the events of this past year it seems like daily <laughs> there's something new in the news how would you say you've processed mm -hmm. the events from the killing of george floyd to um, immigration policies 
and detention from of children, um, separated from their families, other um, racial concerns with the COVID-19 pandemic. There's just a myriad of things. H- how are you processing that and navigating many of those um, themes? There's certainly been a lot that has happened. And frankly, the things that I'm hearing don't surprise me. They make me sad, but they don't surprise me. Um, I think that for the first time, they've come up on a national stage in a way that more white people are aware of what's going on. But within the black community, I, I don't have a sense that any that anybody's surprised. Um, and yet, it's important to, to say it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to keep going down this path. And so I've spent a lot of time at Carleton um, making people aware of things that I see, things that I think um, need to be attended to to make things better. I think it's the Martha part of me that um, tends to look at systems and see places where systems are broken and try to find um, alignment between what we do and say and the... um, and the values and mission that we espouse. And so I spent a lot of time doing that at Carleton over the last year. Um, I also have a, a little bit of a, a national um, present on a, uh, the American Physical Society, which is the National and International Organization for Physicists. And so I've been able to have a voice there. and leading the charge on on some some things on a larger scale, um, leading conversations in that realm. And so I was raised to make a difference in my community. And so that's what I've done. Where I see that there are places missing, I trust that God has shown me those places that need some work um, and has challenged me to sort of step into that that place. And so, although I'm sad by seeing the events and even discouraged, it's not it's not a demotivator, it's a motivator to see what can I do in my community, what can I do where I am. And leaning back on my my mom's words of don't not do something because you're afraid. Um sounds like you really are following um, God's calling and um, God planting you along the way to plant seeds. How has your faith been um, challenged by the experiences of these past um, couple years? Many years ago, um, I decided that I was going to memorize 
chunk of the Old Testament and a chunk of the New Testament. And so I memorized um, in the New Testament the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Old Testament, I memorized Isaiah 55. Come to the waters, you who are thirsty, you who have no money. Come by bread and milk. And that's a paraphrase. I don't remember it as well as I knew it when I was in grad school. But I would say my soul has been thirsty. Thirsty for God in this place. Thirsty for God in my work. And, and so that thirst, that wanting to be close to God, um, is something where when I feel discouraged, when I feel scared, when I don't know what to do, I, I, I sense it as a hunger and a thirst for God in my life. And so um, Brian knows this about me, that, that I'm, when I'm in those times and I, I feel like I've lost connection to God, there, there are two songs that I listen to uh, by a, a woman named uh, Jennifer Knapp. And the two songs are back-to-back on her CD, and they are in the right order for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the names of the songs, but um, the first one in the chorus, when, when nothing satisfies you, when nothing satisfies you, when nothing satisfies you, hold my hand. And, and that's what I've been doing, is reaching up to hold God's hand. And then the second song that comes after it is um, it's a song about leaning up against God's throne to find peace. And so it's a it's just a call. I want to lean, lean against your throne and find and find my peace. Um, and so the first song is sort of upbeat, it's got an aggravated aggressive, yelling, desperate tone to it. And the next song is a calm guitar solo. And those two together help recenter me in the place that Isaiah 55 talks about. Sounds like those verses have been a place where you... um you know and feel God's um, soothing a way that you feel God's comfort in not just in a peaceful way, but that will refresh you um, for what the next step is. You kind of answered this already. Um, what verse or story in scripture holds meaning for you <laughs> as you reflect on Christ's healing and hope for you? Um, you would say both of those stories, the Sermon on the Mount and the um, Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, and you know, I can talk a little bit more about the Sermon on yeah. the Mount. Um, there's so much there. And when I started, there was no way. I was like, I can't do this. You know, this isn't the, you know, Jesus, you know, God so loved the world that, right, it's not one verse, right? It's three three chapters or so. Yes. Um, 
And it, it took me a long time. And again, now I'm sort of out of practice with it, but I can pull the pieces that I need when I need it. But there's so much in there that covers so many different aspects of life. Um, from the Beatitudes to talk about, um, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And again, it probably doesn't surprise you that I picked that one out because it's about a longing for God. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I look at, at the, talking about the law and Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, the, the part of me that's, um, that really wants to have alignment between actions and law really deeply appreciates that about why Jesus had to come and our inability to live the way that God wants us to live. Um, there's parts about, you know, talking about God causes his rain, the rain to fall on the good and the evil. And how much more so we should not treat people as we think that they deserve because God does not treat us the way that we deserve. Um, so there, there's so many rich things that as I'm encountering things throughout my day that I can go to different parts of the Sermon on the Mount and God will speak to me um, and help me, I hope, walk closer um, in, the, in alignment with the way that He calls me to live my life and the way that I actually live my life. I'm going to ask a few questions about um, Northfield in Minnesota. Um, how healthy or unhealthy do you think the town of Northfield or Minnesota uh, as a state is as it pertains to racial matters? I think there are places that look like they are better than others. Um, certainly being in uh Midwest, being in essentially the North, um, it seems like a much safer place than being down South, where you, you, see, you see things and you hear things, and it's like, oh yeah, that's the South, that's, you know, uh, you know they, they're probably a little bit more backwards and racist there, we're all good up here in the North, and it's just, it's more underground here. It's more subtle here. In many ways, they're much better at gaslighting here. Mm -hmm. Um, To give the appearance of of doing the right thing. And really, they're justifying the wrong thing. Um, And so, I think nobody... I mean, in the world, nobody can pat themselves on the back and say, I'm a, good, I'm a good person. I mean, if they could, then why did Jesus come in the first place? You know, I don't have biases. I don't see color. I don't see race. I, you know, I try to be nice to everybody. As soon as you put yourself in that place, you shut down any opportunity for somebody to illuminate for you places where biases come in and I feel like 
in places where racism is much more subtle, we sort of put, a, we put ourselves in that place. And the most important thing for me, even as a black person, is to admit that, uh, that I'm, I'm racist, I'm biased, I'm sexist. I, all, all of the ists, all of the isms, I have that capacity inside of me. And the only way that I can address that is to acknowledge it. So when I get in that circumstance, God can convict me. Because I, I've said, I've given, I've given the Spirit permission to say, you know, I have this capacity in me. Illuminate for me when I am making a judgment about somebody that's not fair to them. Just because of their race, their gender, what neighborhood they live in, what what town they're they're from, um, what country they're from, how they live their lives. Call me on it. I'm willing, and I'm. It's going to hurt, but I'm willing, and I'm open to that. And as soon as I say I don't have any of those things, I will come up with any other excuse that there is, than to let that to let the spirit do that work. It sounds like it um, involves self-awareness and an openness of heart to um, to hear someone else's perspective and understanding or to maybe know their, their story um, and that mine isn't the center or the story that everyone has. Tell us about a time in which your voice was heard, where you significantly felt that what you had to say um, was listened to, you were affirmed for it, um, and respected for it. When I was a visiting faculty member at Carleton, there was a meeting related to a grant, and they were talking about a student program that at the time was, what was it called? I think it was called Frisky or something like that. And I, I was listening to this conversation, and I, I heard, I, I, there were some things I was responding to in that conversation, and then I heard the name of the student program, and I, I said some things in that meeting that apparently made some folks upset. And I got an email from the dean at the time saying, Marty, will you come to my office? Would you like, would you like to have a conversation about this? Um, and so I, I went and I, I had a conversation with the dean and sort of explained some of the things that happened in the meeting that I was reacting to and my feeling about um, the name of this program, which was a, it was a cohort program for um, students of color, students underrepresented in STEM, and it was to support them going going into STEM majors. STEM is science, technology, um, engineering, and math. And um, and I said that's a great program, but as a black person, I would never send my kid to be in a program called Frisky because of the connotations of that word. And the dean 
at the time said, well, what are those connotations? And I, I told her, and she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so I left Carleton, and when I came back, that program was called Focus. Wow. So awesome. I didn't know anything happened at the time, but apparently I started something that resulted in a positive change. Mm -hmm. And so the program didn't end. They just came up with uh, a new name. And my, from my understanding, it was a name that they brought the students in and they asked the students, what would you like to be called? So not only did they listen to you, they listened to mm -hmm. a larger cohort of people that might have been voiceless otherwise. <clears throat> Emmaus is a predominantly white congregation. How might Emmaus be able to... Um, improve in the way it cares for and journeys with people of color in our congregation and in our community. Um, what do you want us to know? The thing that's important to know is, is um, as I mentioned earlier, and you commented on earlier, that, that people of color are not monolithic groups. Um, there are so many things that determine who we are and why we are the way that we are. And yes, there may be some stereotypes that appear to hold, but there are many that don't. And so the importance of getting to know individual people, and that is how you break down stereotypes, is you, you build enough relationships with people to realize, oh, well, wait a minute. I, I, I know all of these people, not just one per not just one black woman physicist, I know 10. Now, frankly, that's a hard one to do because <laughs> there are so few of us. I just discovered um, that I'm not the only black woman physicist with a PhD in Minnesota. There's now another one who came recently, and we just met in a happenstance. Um, so maybe that's a challenging one to, to, uh, <laughs> to sort out. But, um, you know, we have a large Hispanic population here. Um, there, there are are not as many, but there are black people here, there are African people here, there are people from India, there, there are lots of different people, and the more of those different people that you can meet, the more you can start interrogating those stereotypes and saying, wait, where did that stereotype, wait, where did that opinion, or where did that thought come from? Because I know all of these people who don't fit that stereotype, and you can start breaking things down that way. Um, this isn't specific to individuals of color, but um, but one of the things that I've been thinking about sort of um, as chair of council is a little bit procedural, but how many people understand Robert's rules and how how is that not creating a welcoming environment because people don't, they're intimidated by what seems to be this process that some people know and that maybe I shouldn't participate because I didn't do it right. And so um, that's something that, um, that I'm sort of thinking about is we have neighbors here who um, not only um, sort of might be a little bit tentative coming to Emmaus, but then they join and become members and then they don't want to come to the meetings because they're like, oh, well, they use these, these terms and, 
you know, there's a first and a second, and some people talk, and I, I don't, I don't know, so I just, I won't be a part. Um, so I'd like to, I'd like to work on, work on that um, as one of the things that council thinks about um, over the next year is how to make our meetings more inclusive and welcoming. Thank you, and I, I, I hope that that will be something that the council will wrestle with and, and um, allow the congregation to consider how some of the systems we have in place um, can sometimes cause barriers or um, just act as an unconscious um, unwelcome. And I think that it's it's one of those things where, you know, just thinking about how we justify things. We need to have orderly meetings, sure. and this is how you have orderly meetings. But it's not the only way to have orderly meetings, and we could easily let that that argument get in the way of creating more inclusive spaces. And so I just want to throw that out as, as, a, as a specific way in which we could we can reinforce a system by making uh, an argument that's a legitimate argument, mm -hmm. but it actually stops mm -hmm. us moving forward in creating welcoming spaces. Mm -hmm. I hope you found this time welcoming. And I um, am honored that you would share your story with us today. And it, it underlines for me the, the risk taker that you have been and um, really Thanks to Emmaus Church in Northfield for supporting this project. We hope you will join us again next time.